0: We're going to study today verses 14 and 15 as we continue through our series through the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting today, let me greet you. My name is Greg. I serve here as the lead pastor, and it's been my privilege to preach through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. And today we arrive at verses 14 and 15 of this final chapter of the book. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the meat of the matter this morning. Father, give us grace to understand your mind. Teach us this morning and prepare us for the day of battle that you've called us to wage. Father, we can't avoid this fight. It comes to us whether we like it or not. The prince and the power of this heir is angry that former people under his dominion have been delivered out of it. And like any bully, like any tyrant... He does not take kindly to his property being taken. So he will attack us. He will try to reclaim us for his own. But we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So fill us with great confidence. Fill us with uh, a great sense of urgency to put on this armor of God. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was on the eve of World War I that the French army had bought into a particular military doctrine. They called it the spirit of élan. It was, this, it was a, a fighting spirit, courage, the desire to move forward. They said élan above all, above tactics, above decisions, above weaponry. It affected all of their decision making. They thought that with the right fighting spirit, they could overcome anything the Germans would throw at them. Well, this had very important consequences. For example, the French army refused to dig trenches because they wouldn't need them. They would be moving forward. Who needs a trench when you're going to be charging forward into the enemy lines? They refused camouflage and instead took along their their pantalone rouge. I think that's how you say it in French, their red breeches. They said that their red breeches with the blue stripe down the side gave their soldiers great courage, never mind the fact that the German snipers could see them a mile away. They insisted on carrying with them huge vats of red wine instead of ammunition to undergird the courage that their soldiers would need to run into machine guns while wearing red pants. Well... What they didn't know was that the Germans had a plan. They weren't going to fight them head on. They were going to send the bulk of their army all the way up and around. In the big sweeping motion, they were going to try to overtake Paris. The spirit of Elan ran into machine gun nests. And the machine guns won. And just when it looked like the German army was going to completely take over Paris, suddenly the French people started moving. They started digging trenches along the riverbank. Everybody in Paris showed out to cut down trees to clear fields of fire Suddenly, soldiers started wearing green and gray and dark so that they would easily blend into the surroundings. Suddenly, taxicabs were shuttling people back and forth. Bakers were going back and forth to give the diggers and the sappers and all the people that needed to prepare the ground the time to fight. Out the window was all of the military philosophy and all the reputations. Suddenly, the city had great strength and great energy and great zeal to dig in and fight back. And you know what? They won. They stopped that German advance. But what was the difference? What was the difference between that moment of national solidarity and fight, the will to stand firm, and what happened 6 weeks earlier when they were wearing red pants into machine gun fire? Well, here was the difference. Urgency. Before, it was all theory. And suddenly, it was stand your ground and fight or die. And those people, with a sense of urgency, gathered their strength and held their ground. Now, friends, God has given us a clear command to stand our ground and fight. And most of the equipping that he's giving us in this passage is preparatory. And we can blow it off and think nothing of it. We can disregard the advice of God, but there is an evil day coming and may in fact be on us. And we need a sense of urgency for this fight is at our door whether we know it or not or whether we like it or not. And God is giving us this command to prepare ourselves to stand firm. And so, right here, we we encounter verses 14 through 16. It says right here in the passage that David read for us, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Let's get a little uh, context here. With the word finally, as we found back in verse 10, we find out that the apostle Paul has actually been writing this entire letter just to get us to this point of a call to arms. The entire letter, chapters 1 through 5 and most of 6, has been preparatory to help us fight the good fight. Now, Paul, from verses 10 through the end of this chapter, has a grand theme that he's been closing in on, and we're calling this to stand fast in God's power through prayer. Those are the three themes that the Apostle Paul is going to be touching on in the rest of this book. Stand fast in God's power through prayer. Stand fast in God's power through prayer. Now, Paul commands us four different times to stand firm, to stand our ground. Right here, go back to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. But on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. And then we encounter this final command yet again, to stand. And so today, what we're going to cover is the Apostle Paul commands us to stand firm, and then he's going to give us six specific pieces of armor that we're supposed to put on that will prepare us and enable us to stand firm when that evil day comes. Okay, We're going to get one last command to stand firm, And he's going to say, how do you do that? How are you going to stand firm? Well, you need to put on God's armor. He gives us six pieces of armor, and we're going to cover the first three today. The first three today being the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and um, specific footwear uh, that a Christian soldier is supposed to have on. Just so you know, in a couple of these cases, Paul is referring to specific pieces of roman armor that would have been as familiar today as a as a rifle would be to us it was familiar back then as a rifle would be for us okay so he's using very popular terminology and in some of these i've given you the latin phrase for it because roman history is very well attested and there's a lot of people that love to talk about ancient warfare and if you have the Latin phrase, you can go find specific pieces and study that till your heart's content. And I've given you that to you in case you want to go find those. Okay, uh, so forgive me if my Latin is a little, my Latin pronunciation is a little off, but that's why that is there. Okay, let's cover this command first. Paul says at the beginning of verse fourteen, he says, "Stand, therefore, stand." Therefore, this is the conclusion. After all that's been said, after all that he's prepared us, after these three previous commands to stand, he says, stand. Stand your ground. We covered last time how important it was for an ancient army to hold their ground. The entire idea was to hold your line. Do not allow penetration into your line. And then you would unleash an assault To break the opponent's line. The worst thing a soldier could do was throw his instruments down in fear and take off and run because there'd be a breach in the line. And suddenly, you and the person standing next to you, the person to your right or to your left, would be in grave danger because you've abandoned your place in that line. The same is true of Christian warfare. We need each other. Paul calls us a body. He calls us a building that's been held together with living stones, stacked stones that fit together perfectly. You take one of those stones out and it sacrifices the the structural integrity of the whole. The same is true of this battle line. We need each other. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. And if one of us bails, it endangers all the rest of us. So stand firm, stand your ground hold your line, don't back up. That was the entire premise of Roman military doctrine, not backing up, not breaking that line. And so we're commanded finally again to stand. Now I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is not just relying on military doctrine. He actually has some Old Testament scripture in mind. You definitely need to write down Exodus 14, 13. In Exodus 14, the Israelites have been taken out of Egypt like a bird that's flown from the cage. They've gone out of the country. Pharaoh, who'd lost his firstborn son, gives them permission to go, but now he's having second thoughts. He wants his slave labor back. And so he sends out his army to sort of mirror and follow this group of people as they were going into the wilderness. And God, who'd predicted this all along, set a trap for Pharaoh. He trapped Pharaoh by trapping his own people. He had them wander around in the wilderness. He had them turn to the right and then backtrack on itself. And then, wouldn't you know it, they got themselves pinned in to the ancient world's version of a cul-de-sac. They were surrounded by water. They had nowhere to go. Untrained people. And Pharaoh, I don't know if he rubbed his greedy hands together, but let's pretend that he did. He said, they're mine now. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to navigate the desert. Sure enough, let's attack them. And so they began to move on the people of Israel. The people of Israel began to cry out with great bitterness. Was it because there was insufficient graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to kill us? And Moses, filled with great courage, said, stand and see the salvation your God will work for you today. Now that word stand is translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And Paul uses that word to the letter, to the accent mark. He copies it exactly. Stand. And what happened? Well, you know the rest of the story. A great wind came up and pushed the waters. The People of Israel crossed on dry ground. Now, this was something to be feared. I have a picture on the screen. Did you know that Egyptian charioteers were the most feared battle People in the ancient world. They were a special class of people, a special class of nobility. This was recovered from, a, this picture was covered from a, a, a grave tomb, a, a tomb. And he was a part of this special class of warriors. It was a, no, a, a class of nobility. They were charioteers. They had to learn how to hitch up two horses to this chariot without any saddling. Then they had to learn how to ride in the back of that chariot. They'd usually have two people in the back, and they would shoot their arrows, and the the chariots would circle and circle, and they would fire their missiles in, and then they would send the chariots into the victims and cause their lines to break up and cause their lines to run in terror. You can imagine how terrifying it would be to have two huge horses galloping at you at full speed. Sticking out from the chariot wheels were metal swords and pikes. The book of Exodus tells us that there were 600 of these. Well, Pharaoh, 600, 1,200 horses. Imagine feeling the ground shake beneath your feet. And Moses says, stand your ground. Behold what God will do for you today. And God delivered them, did he not? They walked through on dry ground, those ch- dry ground, those chariots chased them into the water. They'd been stacked up on the sides and God allowed the Red Sea to enclose upon them and send them to a watery grave, thus fully and finally delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. This is the image that God has in mind when he says, Stand firm. Now, by standing firm, does that mean you only stand in one place and you never move your feet? No, of course not. We say this sort of thing all the time. We have metaphors where we say, stand your ground, but that means you're going to have to dig a trench, or that means you're going to have to collect your ammunition, or clear your fields of fire. There's a lot of work involved with standing your ground. And so it was. This is a euphemism for following God, taking your eyes off of the enemy, and pursuing toward God and whatever he says, and that is how we stand in this Christian life. We follow God. Even if the entire world opposes us, we get into the will of God and we follow him. And this is the image that the Apostle Paul has for us. Stand, follow God, get where he is and pursue him, and you will be on firm ground. Now Paul says that if you're going to stand your ground, If you're going to follow him, if you're going to make it, if you're going to survive this battle, you can only do it with six pieces of armor. Today we're going to cover three of them, because that's sort of how grammatically how they link together. The first one of these pieces of armor that we find in verse 14 is the belt of truth. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, this is a very hard phrase to translate into sensible English. I believe the King James actually captures the sense best. The trouble is we don't talk like this anymore, okay? It says, having girded yourselves. That's the idea, having girded yourselves. So imagine we're working over the parsonage one day and up walks Nathan Ganino with his tool belt on. And I say, I see you have girded yourself with your tool belt. He's laughing. Maybe I'm going to say that next time actually, just to see what you'll do. We don't say that anymore. Say, oh, I see you got your tool belt on. You put your tool belt on. Well, this is a what, what Paul is trying to communicate here is the the idea of you doing it yourself for yourself. There's an urgency and a preparation and a personal responsibility that he's trying to communicate here that's really difficult to bring over into English. Having girded yourself, it's personal and urgent. And I want you to notice, if you look in your translations, it says right here, it says uh, in verse 14, having, having, uh, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put the breastplate of righteousness, and having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Okay, you see those words, those three words? Having, having, having. That's important. They're all three uh, of the exact same verb type. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, stand, therefore, having done these three things. Having yourselves done these three things. Now, for the next three implements of armor, it changes a little bit, and we'll talk about that next week. But these are three things that Paul, in standing your ground, wants you to have already put on and to keep putting on and to do it now and to do it urgently, or you're not going to be able to make it. Okay? By putting it in the past, that would be like me saying, we need to get this done and Pastor Dom says, when do we need to get it done? And I say, yesterday. What am I saying? I'm saying, it needs to get done, like right now, this is super urgent. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. This this needs to have great personal urgency, okay? He says, now I want you to put on this belt of truth, this belt of truth. Truth, here it's it's a very common Greek word. The word truth is that which accords with reality. It's what's really there as opposed to what's, what's not true. The Hebrew word for truth, which I think is what Paul has in mind, has the idea of reliability. It's a witness that you can trust. It's a, 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 sometimes it's translated faithful. Okay? It's a chair that you can sit in that you know will hold your weight. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's faithful. It's faithful. It's true. It accords with reality. And Paul tells us in Ephesians one thirteen that this is leading to salvation. Now, I want us to notice that he begins with the belt of truth. The first thing he mentions is the belt of truth. Now, I have a question for you if you were going to describe, like let's say you're talking to an an army recruit on his first day of basic training about what he's going to take into battle, what's the first thing you would mention he would need? What's the very first thing you would mention he needs to, to have and get really good at? What would you say? His weapon, his rifle. But Paul says the first thing you need to become very acquainted with the first thing that you need to become skilled with the first thing that you need to have is a belt a belt a belt of truth that's not something that we would have picked first we would have probably started with the sword but paul starts with the belt because he's concerned with the thing that holds all this other stuff together it all falls apart without truth So Paul says, Gird, gird yourselves with the belt of truth. The truth of God's word, Isaiah 45, 19. The truth that is Christ, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. You want to put on the belt of truth? Really get to know Jesus, the perfect incarnation of truth. This is truth the truth of salvation, Ephesians 4.25 or Colossians 1.5. God's truth leads to saving knowledge of himself. Or, believe it or not, we're told that there is a truth of Christians, of Christian love, 1 Corinthians 13.6. We rejoice in the truth. And we don't rejoice in things that are false. There's an integrity to the Christian life. What Jesus said he did... He really did. He really, truly, in a time-space event, rose from the dead. And on that true fact of history, our entire faith rests. And He truly hands out salvation and makes us right with God, such that our character transforms and we begin to live in consistency with the truth of his word. Christian people are above all people of truth and consistency and reliability and integrity. And this, Paul says, is the thing that holds everything else together. That truth, our salvation, our life, our body life together, is supported by, hangs on, the truth of God's word, the truth of God's character, the truth of Jesus crucified. This truth is what we need to hold everything else up. The second bit of armor that Paul tells us to put on, he tells us to put on a breastplate. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Paul describes this breastplate in another section of scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. And there he calls it a breastplate of faith and love. So you might be thinking, well, what is it, Paul? Is it a breastplate of righteousness, or is it a breastplate of faith and love? Well, Paul is describing the Roman breastplate. And if you understand what the Roman breastplate is, it makes perfect sense. Uh, The very description makes sense when we consider the Roman breastplate. I should have put a picture of it up, but it's called, and I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, the Lorica Segmentate. You can look it up when you get home if you want to write down that Latin phrase. What this was is it was strips of soft iron, or it was strips of steel, soft steel, that was riveted onto leather straps and then overlapped kind of like feathers on a chicken, okay? So you'd have the, the strips of steel down here and then the, the upper ones would overlap them and the above ones over that would overlap and the above ones over that would overlap. And this is actually brilliant. This breastplate armor became the envy of the ancient world. When you have reliefs of, say, Trajan's armies or Caesar's hordes, they're all proudly wearing these breastplates. They had metal shoulder epaulettes up here, and they had the same thing in the back. Well, the reason these were so effective was the interlocking nature of the armor. They fit loosely, and so they could absorb the force of an arrow, say, that shot at you. If one of the pieces falls loose of the leather, that's okay, because you've got all these other pieces on here to protect you. Furthermore, it provided a huge amount of mobility, whereas if it were just one cast piece, imagine how clunky that would be. Not to mention uncomfortable. And so, these breastplates were interlocking pieces of metal that hung comfortably and moved freely. They were basically impervious to arrows, and Roman soldiers warned them, wore them proudly. In fact, these breastplates were typically passed down generationally. And they were good for several generations of soldiers because of the way that they were made. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us to put on this sort of variegated breastplate that's the virtues of God. His righteousness, his truth, his... Uh, what does he say in um, Thessalonians? His faith and love. Now, what is this? By the way, when we see here the belt of truth or, say, the breastplate of righteousness, commentators can twist themselves into knots trying to figure out the exact meaning of breastplate of righteousness. Okay, Let me give the two main options. Is it righteousness that we do after we're saved And like the book of Psalms says, our righteousness is a protection for us? Or is it the righteousness that God provides when we exercise faith and trust in Christ? Like I said, commentators can get themselves tied in knots figuring this out. I'm not going to go into all the details explaining why I've chosen what I've chosen, but I think in this case, it's pretty clear from the context of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul is talking about the righteousness that God provides when we put our faith in Christ. Because it's a righteous declaration of God. God says, you are justified. You are righteous. The word justified and righteous is the same Greek root. This is God's righteous declaration in response to faith in Christ and God's resulting righteous deliverance. Psalm 31.1, David can pray. Deliver me, not because of my righteousness, but because of your righteousness. And every Christian has the right to pray that. We can all say, Lord, I'm sinful, I'm broken, I'm flawed. But you've said that you would be with me. You've said that you would never leave me or forsake me. And people are looking, wondering if you're going to forsake me. Be good to your word. Be righteous. And for the sake of your own righteous promise, deliver me. And that is a, that's a prayer God loves to answer. I think I've used this illustration in here before. How many of you fathers have gotten very weary of the P word, which is promise? <laughs> your children will come up to you and they'll say, Daddy, can we, can we do this? And you say, yeah, I think we can, we can do that. And they say, what do they follow that up with, dads, especially daughters? I don't know why. It's, sons don't do this as much, but my daughters do. They say, Daddy, do you promise we'll do it? Now, how many of you dads at that point go into full backpedal mode? Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I said I would do my best. Now why do you back up on that, dads? Why do you back up on that? Because the next day, when you forget, they're going to come up to you and they're going to say, Daddy, you promised. And I know you guys are great dads, and so you drop everything at that moment, and you keep your word, and you fulfill your promise. Well, God's given us a lot of promises. God doesn't backpedal like we do. And we can go to him anytime and say, Father, you promised. Be good to your word. That's righteousness. Fulfill your promise to me. And that's a, that's a prayer God speedily answers because you've remembered his promise and you brought it to him in faith. He loves to answer that. Now, there's one final piece of armor that we need to cover today. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to put on the belt of truth so it's what holds everything together, first and foremost. I want you to protect yourself with the righteousness that I provide. Put on this breastplate. And then, you're only as good as your footwear. Okay? He says, I want you to shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Now again, we're entering a world that doesn't exactly communicate super well into English. But Roman soldiers with these shoes of readiness, Roman soldiers wore sandals into battle. And they looked very much like our sandals do today. Now these sandals, the ones that Paul is referencing, they're called uh, I think it's the pronunciation is the caliga. They were very thick-soled, a couple of inches thick. And they would drive nails through the top of the leather to where it would protrude out the bottom. It wasn't one nail. Like I've heard these be called a hobnail boot. And I've pictured one spike on the heel and that's not it. They would drive several of these down through the sole and then they would lay a piece of leather on top so that your foot wouldn't be irritated by the metal. I think the best parallel would be um, have you, if I were to say indoor soccer cleats, how many of you would know what I was talking about? Okay. Shoes with lots of spikes on the bottom of them that are kind of short, but these were metal. Okay. Sometimes, okay, so this is kind of, this is one of the weird things that I, I do. Um, it's icy in the Ogden Valley in the winter, and I like to run, and I like to run outside, but the icy kind of bums me out when I'm trying to run. So I take a pair of old shoes that are almost worn out, and I go to the hardware store, and I get um, those those nails that are kind of like staples, like big, thick staples, and I drive 10 or 15 of them into the toes of my feet to where the, the spike doesn't come all the way through and poke me, but to where the metal sticks out, and you'd be surprised how great attraction I get doing that. Now, you can buy attachments to your shoes that cost 50, 60 bucks, or you can spend 50, 60 cents driving those little things through the bottom of your shoe, and they work great, okay? That's the idea. When the Roman lines had to hold, imagine you've got your battle line, and the enemy decides, we're not going to try to stab you. What we're going to do is just rush you and try to break through with physical force, Well, this line has to link arms and hold its ground, and you're only as good as what touches the ground. And so they put cleats on their feet, and they could hold up against the brunt force that was coming their way. And so Paul says, I want you to shod your feet with these hobnailed sandals, all these spikes coming out of them, so that when you get hit with a frontal assault, your feet will stand. This word readiness is a challenging word to translate. It says right here in our translations, it says, and choose for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The, the word readiness, it, this is the only time in the New Testament that it's used, and I think it has more of the idea of foundation, okay? It has more of the idea of like preparing ground for uh, laying a foundation. The idea is foundational, okay? So Paul says, I want you to put on these shoes of the gospel of peace so that you'll have firm footing underneath of you and you'll be able to stand. I have here Luke 7.50 or Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In Luke 7.50... The sinful woman is told by Jesus, your sin, your faith has saved you, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. How many of you have had some bad things happen in life and you look back on your life and you say, this must be Because of sins I've committed. Specifically sins I committed before I came to Christ. And you begin to view the trial that you're in now in guilt and shame over what you did. And I want you to know, nothing could be further from the truth. Whatever trial you're going through now has nothing to do with what you did. Nothing. You are at peace with God. And he's not a God who throws your sins back up into your face at a later date. He dealt with them at the cross. And you're at peace with God. Why am I going through this trial? Well, God prunes those he loves so that you'll be more fruitful. God has this in a season, limited in its time, but powerful in its effect. And he's doing it because he loves you and he wants your best. You would not applaud a football coach who never challenged his players. You would not send money to a college that only affirmed the students and told them they were doing a great job and never offered them correction. You wouldn't pay a music instructor to teach your child the violin when, they, when your child was clearly doing it the wrong way and they affirmed it. It's love to correct so that the outcome is glorious. And that's what God is doing for us. It has nothing to do with your past life of sin and everything to do with the love and peace that you have with God right now. And so, if you're standing your ground and the devil comes along and says, I know what you did. Pow! You've got feet shod with cleats that say, "Uh uh-uh, it has nothing to do with that because I'm at peace with God. And you don't back up an inch, do you? Because you're at peace with God. That's what Paul is getting at. Okay, in conclusion, I'll leave with one thought. May God grant us the urgency that comes when life and death battle is imminent. May God grant us urgency that comes when life and death battle was imminent. When I was um, 12, I joined the wrestling team. I'm sorry, I was 11. When I was 11, I joined the wrestling team. And I'm going to tell you something about my wrestling career. I was the worst 11-year-old wrestler in the history of 11-year-old wrestlers, okay? They had double elimination tournaments, and I would have to go wrestle. And I would promptly lose my first match, and then wait around, and then promptly lose my second match, and then we would go home. (laughs) I was so accustomed to losing, my family was so accustomed to my losing, that at the start of my second match, my family would start putting on their jackets and getting their stuff together because they knew in no time flat we would be out the door and heading home. Well, not only was I a terrible wrestler, I'm a very competitive person and I hated losing. And my losing streak was reaching epic proportions. when one of my friends came up to me and he said, hey, the guy that you're about to wrestle, you can beat him. And I'm like, okay. He said, all you have to do is grab the back of his head and push it straight to the mat. I said, really? And he said, yeah, it's all you have to do, you'll win. I was so sick of losing, I would have listened to just about any advice given to me at that point. So we went back, they had a little practice wrestling mat, and we practiced doing it a few times. I was, I was sick of losing. The referee blew his whistle, I reached up, grabbed the kid's head, and wouldn't you know it, it worked! and I won my first wrestling match. I promptly lost the next one, and we went home, but (laughs) I'm sick of losing. And suddenly, my friend came along and said, here's how you can win, and I was all ears. Well, guys, we often are like the Laodiceans. We see ourselves as rich and healthy and powerful and in need of nothing. But when the enemy's at our gates, (laughs) suddenly there's urgency to fight. And we need to always see ourselves as Christians at arms, Christians with an enemy lurking. The devil is like a lion lurking about, seeing whom he might devour. We can never afford to think of ourselves as at peace with this world because this world is not at peace with us. And we need to take that sense of personal responsibility and urgency into our walk with the Lord daily so that when the fight comes unexpectedly, we're ready. So let us have that urgency. Father, would you give us grace to prepare ourselves for the day of battle to prepare ourselves for the moment when we're called upon to fight for your kingdom, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. May we reflect, meditate on your gospel and on your righteousness and on your truth. May we put that on so that we would be able to stand in the evil day. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.